So we uh, continue our series on hope during this Advent and Christmas season, and what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to pick, pick out these very vivid metaphors from the Old and the New Testament. And so we looked at the two Old Testament metaphors of a door opening, a door of hope opening in the valley. We looked at the being prisoners of hope last week, and we're moving into the New Testament now. We're looking at the book of Hebrews with uh, a nautical metaphor for our consideration this morning. So Hebrews is a letter written to show that Jesus is better than anything or anyone else we might put our trust in, that Jesus is worth sticking with in persecution and suffering and confusion and doubt and whatever our circumstances are. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. And in our passage in particular, we are encouraged to be patient and keep waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And the example that's given to us is the example of Abraham, who waited and received what God had promised to him. The image we're given here is the image of an upside-down anchor, the anchor that Jesus hooked on the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary. This is our hope. Our hope is like that anchor that is attached to the very throne of God in heaven. And that's what keeps us hoping and waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, and that kind of anchor, that kind of hope can bring stability and security to our souls, even in the fiercest of storms. So let me read our passage, and then I will make several observations. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we consider this this great image of hope as an anchor, I'd like to divide the sermon into three parts. Uh, Pretty simply, I'd like to first consider the hopeful soul, the hopeful soul. Secondly, the upside-down anchor. And finally, the oath of God. The hopeful soul, the upside-down anchor, and the oath of God. Continuing with our Scottish theme from last week, I'm going to quote another Scottish theologian, 17th century pastor Henry Scougal wrote, the soul of man is of a vigorous and active nature and has in it a raging and unextinguishable thirst 
the immaterial kind of fire, always catching at some object or other in conjunction wherewith it thinks to be happy. What Skugel is saying is that human beings cannot help but look for something or someone to make them happy. In other words, we are innately hopeful beings. A baby, and pick any baby you want in the congregation, a baby is born looking to her mother for nourishment, for love, for care. Nobody's teaching the baby to do that. This is an innate ability of all human beings to hope, to look for something to make them, them happy. As this baby gets older, she gets excited about her grandparents coming over with a present, her father perhaps being proud of her for being a good big sister, excited about getting good grades in school, about getting invited to the right parties, getting accepted into college, marrying Mr. Wright, beginning a career, having babies and watching them grow up, having grandbabies and watching them grow up, enjoying retirement and so on. But the life, any life is, is a series, is a collection of hopes, one after another. And yes, some hopes are dashed, some morph into recurring disappointments, some grow dim, although maybe never quite go out. But life can't actually exist without hope. It's actually impossible for a person to stay alive and have no hope in anything or anyone whatsoever. Viktor Frankl, who's an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor, documented these, these cases when he was in a concentration camp. He documented that prisoners who survived, who kept going in spite of all the difficulties, were those who had hope. And those who gave up hope, and he said it happened suddenly, uh, in the morning somebody would just refuse to get up and refuse to get dressed and refuse to eat. And he said that everybody knew that that person was going to die because they lost hope. And in fact, Frankel himself stayed alive and continued to survive in spite of all the difficulties because he hoped to meet again his wife. His wife was taken to another camp, and what kept him alive, what kept him going by his own testimony, is that vision, that dream, that, that hope that someday he will meet his wife again and they will be together. Now, this is how human beings are made. We're made to be hopeful. Now, what is, what is hope? Well, a simple definition of hope is an expectation of blessing. Hope is an expectation of blessing. Now, God made promise to Abraham. It was a specific promise. In verse 14, he said, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So Abraham's hope was the expectation of blessing through his son, through his heir, through his offspring. God said that through this baby, I will make you into a nation, a nation with a land, a nation with influence, a nation with, with many people filling the earth, a nation that could bless others. Now, that was a specific promise to Abraham. And Abraham's hope was expectation of that happening. In his life, as Scripture says, he hoped against hope. 
Even when things were not actually looking like it was going to happen, he still expected that blessing to come. And that hope provided meaning and direction to his life. He made decisions based on that hope. So what are, what are your hopes? Where do you expect your blessing to come from? What promises of blessing, real or imagined, verbalized or implied, what promises of blessing shape your life? Because if you are a human being, your life is shaped by your hopes, and you need to figure out what they are. In fact, as you figure out what they are, there are two levels here. One level is we need to identify what those hopes are in general, and there are many options here, and everybody is connected to, to something on this list and can add more to this list. These are kind of the normal hopes of life. Attention from somebody cute, right? That's a hope. Some live for that, right? <laughs> Professional success, promotions, raises, approval of your boss, success of your company, healthy children, children who are doing well, or maybe children who are married and having their own children, or maybe children with good jobs, or maybe children with good homes. Happy marriage is another hope. Parental approval. No matter what age you are, most of us are hoping for our parents to be proud of us, to be happy with us. Praise for someone, from someone important. Financial stability. Ministry fruitfulness. It could be something as trivial as your team winning a trophy. But that's the list and many, you can add many more to that list. But all of us are animated by these kinds of hopes. We live our lives and we go from one thing to the next and we're expecting blessings from all these different sources. Now, not all of them are, have the same importance to us. Some of us have placed way, too, way more stock into our children's well-being or into financial stability or into career. It's different. And that's why the next question, the next level of this reflection exercise is, is, has to be, what is my ultimate hope? If these are my hopes in general, what is my ultimate hope? What is the blessing without which I cannot survive? Now, there are a lot of blessings that we wait for in life, but there are some that define who we are on the level of our souls. Now, when the writer of Hebrews talks about this anchor in, in, that's, that's in the sanctuary of God. He describes, it, describes this hope as an anchor for our souls. He's talking about something deep. He's talking about something that, that defines who we are. What, what is a soul? A soul is, is who you really are. That's, that's your essence. That's yourself, is the word we use today. So what is, what is the ultimate hope of yourself? And the way you know that it's ultimate is that you can't even imagine living without that. And when a storm comes, when a crisis comes, when a conflict comes into your life, and you lose that, you fall apart. Your whole life falls apart. And you cannot go on, you cannot function, because that is your ultimate hope. Now, the image in this passage is familiar. It's using the image of an anchor. It presents our souls 
or ourselves, our identities, who we really are, as ships that need to be anchored to survive a storm. That's the image. Now, if the sea is calm, an anchor doesn't need to work very hard. But when a storm comes, the strength of an anchor is exposed. Some anchors hold and others don't. While the strength of the storm matters, of course, it is ultimately the strength of the anchor that ensures the safety of a ship. When a crisis happens, what keeps you from falling apart? What promise do you trust? What blessing do you still expect to get? What keeps you going when there's a storm and things look like they're falling apart? What doesn't help you not to fall apart? That's your ultimate blessing. That's your ultimate promise. That's your ultimate hope. What is it? What is your ultimate anchor? Now, if you forgive me some cultural commentary, here's what I think is happening right now in our culture. There's a parallel to the personal experiences of people, but we're seeing it on a collective scale today. The old anchors that, that used to, to bring order and stability to our culture, like family or religion or career or, or government, they've been abandoned by and large. Our culture has abandoned those old anchors that used to keep us somewhat stable. And when storms come now, many people find themselves unmoored and tossed about. And that's, at least that's the feeling I have, and I know haven't talked to many of you, it's shared by many. There's a sense of being untethered to anything of importance. There's a sense of, of chaos. There's a sense of just being just thrown about by waves and wind in the storm. And nothing we can grab, nothing we can hold on to, nothing can keep us stable and in place and, and able to withstand what's coming at us. And, you know, we can, we can speculate whether the storms today are greater than they used to be before, maybe. But I think what's clear, at least to me, is that the anchors that we used to have are no longer there. Now, those anchors could only withstand certain storms, but they were there and provided a certain sense of order and stability. And so what's happening today, I think, is that in the absence of the old anchors of family and career and government and those kinds of things, economic stability and those things, in the absence of those anchors, people are panicking and they're looking for something, for something to anchor them in the storm. And so they're grabbing for, for new identities, for new causes. I mean, it is amazing how quickly our culture shifts. Now, there's a reason for that. A ship can move very quickly when it's not anchored. A ship can be thrown around, and you can find, a ship can find itself in far away from harbor when there's no anchor. And so what I'm seeing today is I'm seeing that that people are grasping for these new anchors. They're trying to come up with, with new hopes, find something that will stabilize them, quickly grabbing and abandoning them because none of those anchors actually hold. I mean, it's amazing how, how quickly new identities emerge, how quickly new causes emerge. 
and how quickly the passions rise. I mean, people can feel so passionate about something they heard that morning on TikTok, it can completely define their hopes for that day. Now, why is that? My answer to that is because they're not anchored. And if you're not anchored and the storm is coming, you're, gonna, you're looking for something to hold on to. You're looking for something to keep you stable. Now, that's a large scale happening in our culture. But it's happening on a personal level with many people. And no matter what time you live in, it's going to happen to you or if it hasn't yet. We're all going to find ourselves in a storm. And the question is going to be, will my anchor hold? Or will the storm break the ship up and, 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 and I will sink and my whole life will fall apart? The ultimate anchor, and this is why you have to, you have to consider the ultimate anchor, because actually we have many anchors. And some of them are going to give and it's going to be fine. And you're going to say, yeah, I'm okay without that. If that hope is, is, is dashed or, or deferred, that's okay. Because I have other anchors that are greater, that are stronger, that are going to keep me stable. But you have to figure out which one of those is the ultimate one. That if that anchor goes, everything goes. If that chain breaks, the ship is gone. What is it? You do have to do some reflection to get there. But I don't think it's difficult. I think it just, it just takes a, a daring, it's, it's a moment of daring imagination when you consider, what will my life, be, my life be if I lose that? And if your answer is, well, I think I'm going to be okay, that's not the ultimate anchor. But if your answer is fear, <laughs> and, and you think, I don't know how I'm going to make it without it, that's your ultimate anchor. And even in a stable culture, even in a stable life, eventually even that anchor is going to get challenged. And a storm is going to come that's, that's going to put everything in question and you're going to have to ask yourself, will it hold now? Now in a time like that, when the old anchors are either, anchors are either gone or they're being challenged by a new storm, there is a great opportunity to consider whether what you have anchored yourself to is actually worth, is worth it. There's a great opportunity in our culture and in many lives to find an ultimate anchor that can never fail and will hold in the worst of storms. And what Scripture tells us is that it is that upside-down anchor of the gospel. It's the upside-down anchor of the gospel. Among all those anchors you can pick, some ultimate, some not, some that will, will carry you through a little storm and some that will carry you through a larger storm, among all those, those anchors, there is nothing there that will actually help you in the biggest of storms. There is another one, and it's not here, it's in heaven. There's another anchor that is rooted not here, but it's rooted in heaven. It's an upside-down anchor. It's a different kind of design. It's a different kind of anchor. Now look at verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is the picture here? Our souls can be anchored not in anything earthly, 
but in the throne room of God himself. The writer of Hebrews is using temple imagery. The most sacred room in the temple in Jerusalem was the Holy of Holies, the the inner place, the inner sanctuary, the most holy of places, the, the place where God's presence was concentrated on earth. And it was separated by a curtain, by a veil. And only once a year, a priest, a special priest, the only priest, there was just one person who could go in there, go behind, beyond that curtain, and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the sacrifice was, was offered over the, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this box that was fashioned as a throne. The idea is that we will bring a sacrifice directly to God. And that blood covering the Ark of the Covenant, covering the mercy seat of God, as it was called, would somehow delay God's judgment on His people. So once a year, very fearfully, very carefully, a priest called the high priest would go and do that. So the writer of Hebrews, many, many years later, he's writing about this and he's saying that Jesus went in there as a different kind of priest, not as a regular high priest of, of, of Israel, but as a Melchizedekian priest, a different order of priesthood. It's sort of like this, this next level, the final level of priesthood, or the, the eternal level of priesthood. He went in there, and instead of bringing the sacrifice and leaving, he brought an anchor with him, and he hooked it to the throne of God in heaven. That's the image. And everybody who's associated with Jesus, everybody who's connected with him by faith, who's part of his people, who's a follower of Christ, now gets to hold that chain to the anchor that is hooked on the throne of God in heaven. Which means that nothing that happens on earth can dislodge that anchor. I mean, it's an amazing thing that that Scripture gives us these images that if we only take just a few minutes to actually imagine it, to actually meditate on what the Scriptures are saying, it opens a, a whole new reality to us, a spiritual reality, reality of God, how He works with His people. And then it becomes incredibly practical to us. Because this room is filled of stories of God's people holding on to that anchor of hope. The anchor that Jesus as our, our forerunner, the one that came before us, the one th- that is attached to the throne of God in heaven. There's, there's, this room is filled with stories of people who held on to that anchor in incredibly dangerous circumstances, in incredibly painful circumstances, in, in really bad storms, and that anchor held, and their hope, they were not disappointed. I mean, if you think about these images, yes, these are, these are beautiful images. There's, it's poetic language. It's, 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 it's asking you to imagine things and to, to see things in your mind. But they become very practical once you grasp them by faith. This is the kind of hope that is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not anchored here on earth. It is anchored in heaven. It's not attached to anything or anyone that is susceptible 
to all the storms as we are. The hope was not to receive an earthly blessing, but a heavenly one. Our hope is fixed to an immovable, unchangeable, eternal object, God himself on his throne, God himself in his temple. I mean, this is the kind of hope that that the gospel offers to us. Because any other anchor, any other hope that is ultimately rooted here, it, it is changeable. The best person who can love you will not be there for you forever. The best career will end. Even if everything goes exactly as you dreamed, it will eventually end and you will retire and you will sit at your kitchen table and you say, what am I supposed to do now? Right? The most obedient, the most beautiful, the healthiest, the the most well-behaved children, right? Will not, I don't, are, do they exist? I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but if they exist, those are, if they exist for moments, right? Those are moments. And also they leave eventually. So there's nothing in this world that can provide that kind of lasting hope, that kind of lasting anchor. Yes, some anchors anchored here on earth will hold during some storms. There are better and worse anchors, sure. But there's nothing here that will get you through the worst of the storms. Now, what is the promise that we are patiently waiting for? If, if hope is an expectation of blessing, it's, it's connected to a promise, and the whole passage is about this promise God made to Abraham and promises that God makes to us. So what is the blessing that we are expecting from God that that we are holding this this anchor for? The promise is nothing less than full restoration. That full restoration. In Christ, all things will be made new. You see, the promise of God is not only that we will survive the storms of this life, but that we will be ushered into a world where there will be no storms, Do you remember that promise that the sea will be no more? What does that mean? It's disappointing to those of us who enjoy water, right? It's not talking about the physical seas. It's talking about the place of storms, the place of conflict, the place of evil. And the promise is is that in the new world, in the remade new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no storms. There simply will be no conflicts. We will receive a life without crises. There will be no sickness or or death. We will not weep because there will be nothing to weep over. We will experience the the shalom of the the renewed creation, renewed by God himself, made right. That's the promise. I mean, if you, if you thought the gospel is only promising forgiveness, you are, you are sadly mistaken. There is so much more that the Lord is promising to his people. It begins with forgiveness, but it ends with full restoration, full restoration, full renewal of it. all that you are, all parts of you, all parts of your life, all parts of the world. The promise of God is the ultimate blessing. Now, all the other blessings we pursue find their fulfillment 
in the ultimate blessing of God. For example, we seek health here. That's a good thing. Health is a blessing. Expectation of health is a hope that sometimes keeps us going. It could become an anchor. But God promises something beyond health. He promises immortality. He promises eternal life unaffected by the decay of death. We seek reputation. For many of us, that's the hope and maybe even the ultimate hope that drives us is how other people think of me. But God promises beyond reputation, God promises glory. Glory. To be exalted by God Himself. To be honored and affirmed by Him. That can't compare to the reputation I can have here, to the best of reputations here. We seek influence in this world and power. But God promises well beyond that that we will rule with Him forever. We will be His kings and priests in His kingdom forever. I mean, this is so beyond what we can imagine that it's hard to describe. We seek approval of others here, praise of others, but He promises to bring us into His own family. And, and, and allow us to experience the acceptance of God, not just people, the acceptance of God. Now, God's promise of this ultimate blessing, the blessing that will include all the other blessings we pursue here, actually is the explanation for the hopefulness of our souls. The reason we are made to hope is because God means to fulfill our hopes. Because God means to give us what we crave. When God made us, He made us hopeful people so that He could satisfy our longings. So He could satisfy that thirst, so He could quench that fire. I mean, all that makes us human is, is, makes sense because of what God means to do for us. And that hopefulness was disrupted by sin. That, that, that desire for the ultimate blessing and actually the possession of the ultimate blessing was, was affected by sin and that ultimate blessing became severed from us by sin. And when we look for those other anchors, when we look for those other hopes, really what we're searching for is the ultimate blessing. But we can't get there by our own efforts. We can only receive it as a gift. We can only receive it by grace through Christ. Like Abraham, we are waiting for this ultimate blessing to come. And our hope is like an upside-down anchor that Jesus attached to the throne of God. This is our ultimate hope. This is our ultimate anchor. And no earthly storm, no personal conflict no cultural chaos can sink a soul that is anchored in heaven. It is impossible. The imagery that, that is given to us in this passage shows us that we can trust the anchor because it's, it's anchored somewhere where, where it's unaffected by the things that we are affected by. And so it gives us a different kind of stability in this life. Yes, you're still going to be in the storms, but if you're anchored in the throne room of God, you can survive it. 
you can find that stability. As a hymn goes, we have a hope that is steadfast and certain, gone through the curtain and touching the throne. The question is, do you have that kind of hope? Are you still looking for an anchor that will hold? Are you storm-tossed, scared, falling apart? Or maybe you're in a season of, of calm and wondering what will happen when a crisis comes, and it, it will come. And what about death, the greatest storm of all? Will your anchor hold then? Will you be able to withstand God's scrutiny at death? Will you be able to withstand God's judgment? Well, here's an anchor that you can trust, an upside-down anchor of Christ. In life or in death, this ultimate blessing is ours in Christ. And so lastly, I want to connect it to today, to how you feel right now, what you're wrestling with right now. Because the point of this passage, as, as beautiful as this imagery is, and I think as, as clear as this idea is that our hope can be anchored in heaven with God, the point of this passage is not actually to explain it to us or to describe it. The point of the passage is to help us keep hoping in Christ. The point of this passage is actually to, to convince us that we can continue to trust God. Look at verse 18. So that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The hope is here. The anchor is here. The ultimate blessing is promised to us. Now, our biggest question is going to be, can I keep hoping can I keep trusting? Because as we sang, we are prone to wonder. Right? Prone to wonder, Lord, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. I'm sure you do too. Yes, I hear about the anchor, but am I, am I going to keep holding on to it? Am I going to keep trusting the Lord? Am I going to keep trusting that that promise of the ultimate blessing will come true for me? And here the example of Abraham is very helpful. Praise God for all these stories of people in the Bible and all the stories of people in the church who continue to go through trials and storms and keep trust in the Lord so they can encourage us to do the same. In Genesis 15, and if you'd like, you can turn there or you can just listen. I'll recap it quickly for us. In Genesis 15, after some years of waiting for a child, Abraham is starting to lose hope. Now, he and Sarah are very old at this point. They have no children. And so God meets Abraham at night, and he says, Look up, count the stars, so shall your offspring be. That's a promise. God is renewing that promise, and he's given him another image, and he's saying, Look at the stars, as many stars as you can see. That's how many children you're going to have, and their children and their children. You will be a nation. And, and we are told that Abraham believed God. At that moment, when God showed him the sky, right, and he says, that's how many offspring you're going to have, Abraham actually believed God's word. So Abraham has this hope in the ultimate blessing at this point. But something happens after this, 
Abraham asks God, how am I to know that your promises will come true and I will receive your blessing, that I will receive the land and the children? Now, he already believes. Now, what Abraham is asking for is encouragement. He's asking for something that will help him keep believing God, that will help him keep hoping against hope. Because he looks around and says, we don't have any children. How do I keep trusting you, Lord? And this is where the Lord does something very odd. He makes a covenant with Abraham. That's not the odd part. The odd part is how he does it. He makes an oath. He swears by himself. He puts himself into the equation. Now God tells Abraham to bring animals and cut them up. Abraham knows exactly what's happening because according to the cultural norms, this is how you would make an agreement with someone else. You have two parties coming together. You bring the animals, you cut them up, you put them on the ground, and then the, both parties walk through the animals. They walk through the, the bloody remains of the animals. And the idea is that both parties are committing to keep their word, to keep their promise. And the promise is, if I don't keep my promise... May I be cut up like the animals. May I be slaughtered like these animals. What you see here, this carnage, may my life become this kind of carnage if I don't keep my word. That was normal. That's how agreements were made. It wasn't on paper with, with a seal and a signature. No. It was done on the ground with the animal parts scattered around and people walking through them. What's really strange about this covenant is that God does not demand for Abraham to walk through the parts. God is the only one that actually does that. There's the smoke and fire and darkness, and, and God walks through that by himself, which makes the writer of Hebrews says, God made an oath, and he could only swear by himself because there's no one greater than he is. So yes, God, God made a promise, and he doesn't lie. And so just based on that word to Abraham, that was enough for that hope. But to give him more encouragement and to reveal more about how his covenant works, the Lord places the animals, walks through them, and says, may I be slaughtered like these animals if these promises don't come true. This is the oath that God makes to have our hope become even more secure. And this is exactly what he wants us to remember when our hopes fade, when our faith wavers, when we struggle to continue to trust the upside-down anchor. Of course, God not only made this oath, but he kept it. Many years later, Jesus Christ came to restore God's ultimate blessing to his people. Since one of the parties has not kept its end of the deal, since we have been unfaithful to God, disobedient, unrepentant, the Lord himself was slaughtered so that the covenant can stand. When Jesus went to the cross, it was to fulfill that covenant. It was to fulfill that oath. When Jesus went to the cross, he was cut up, destroyed, sacrificed, 
so we can know that God's promise can never fail. Jesus threw himself into the biggest storm of death under God's wrath so that we can know that our anchor will hold and that our hope is not futile. God made an oath by himself. He swore by himself because there is no one else greater that he can swear by. And God himself kept the oath by the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is why Jesus became an eternal high priest. Because he alone did something that made our salvation, made the obtaining of that ultimate blessing depend on nothing and no one else but on God and what he has done for us in Christ, which makes it eternally secure. Only Jesus could go into the heavenly holy of holies with the kind of sacrifice he was brought, this eternal, blameless God-man put on the altar over the mercy seat. Only God could do that. And only God-man could represent us before God. So Jesus went into the holy of holies, and he's the only person he could do that. And he hooked the anchor to the throne for us. And that is why the upside-down anchor will hold no matter how strong the winds get and no matter how long we are buffeted by the ways. So take courage and continue to trust Him. Hope against hope. Because the oath of God guarantees that we will receive the ultimate blessing. All God's promises will come true. And all things will be made new in Jesus. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now we're going to come to the table. And what do you see at this table? What do you see if not the new covenant? Reenacted for us, put on display. We're given another image image of a feast, image of connection with God and renewal of all things, and our thirst being quenched, and our hunger being satisfied at his table. And why? Because his body was broken, and his blood was spilled. Because we see at this table, we see God's oath made and fulfilled in Jesus. And so we hope. So when you walk to the table, or if you raise your hand and an elder brings communion to you, when you, when you connect with Jesus on this, on this way, you, what you're doing is you're taking hold of the anchor. And you're saying, I will hope, no matter what the storms are in my life, I will hope because my hope is anchored in heaven, in the throne room of God himself, and it will hold through all the storms, including death. So let me pray. And then as we sing, you can come and take communion or raise your hand, an elder will bring it to you. It's set up here at this table, it's on the balconies as well. And if you'd like to process what you're hearing from God, uh, Jillian and I and Polina will be available to, to pray with you, so we'll be over there if you want to pray with us. And if you have not encountered Jesus as this high priest that gives you this kind of hope, that promises this ultimate blessing to you, go to him.
Don't come to the table, but go to him and meet him for the first time and see him as your high priest and your anchor of hope. Let me briefly pray, and then we'll come. Father, we praise you for who you are. And we remember and we celebrate what Jesus has done. And we know that no one else could give us this hope. No one else could guarantee that the ultimate blessing will be ours. No one else but Jesus, the one who died in fulfillment of your oath, the one who rose again, given us a new life as a forerunner into this new world, the one who ascended and is interceding for us even now as our priest, and the one who will surely return to make all things new. So, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to work in our hearts. Make our hearts believe the gospel. Convince us to continue to trust you. Encourage us. Give us strong encouragement. Because I know some of us are in the midst of a a fierce storm. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strong encouragement that this anchor, this upside-down anchor of Christ, will hold. And we will not just survive this storm and other storms and the worst storm of all, your judgment. But we'll also be ushered into a world without storms and live with you forever. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do it together by faith.